Hello and welcome to the Folklore Podcast. I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. As you will have seen if you follow the Folklore Podcast on social media, we're starting a new series of online talks. The Folklore Podcast Lectures is an ongoing series of fully illustrated online presentations with a chance for people attending to directly ask questions of the speaker after the presentation. We're doing the first two of these ourselves, and then there will be a range of guest speakers taking part in the future. This is a wonderful opportunity to be able to listen to experts from around the world in real time, and to be able to ask your own questions of them. Tickets for the talk are all going to be a very reasonable £5 each which I hope you will agree is a small price for the time of leading researchers in their fields. Furthermore, podcast Patreon supporters enjoy further discounts on this ticket price. See the posts on the Patreon page for more details. The series begins on Saturday the 18th of July at 8pm UK time, when I will be presenting Beyond the Hound of the Baskervilles, an examination of the black dog in folklore and a look at some of the cases which probably fed into the creation of the Sherlock Holmes novel. If you've never been able to come to one of my live talks because you live too far away, now you can. I look forward to hopefully seeing some of you there. Secondly, on Saturday the 1st of August, again at 8pm UK time, Tracy Norman will be giving the talk Plants, Poultices and Persecution. This is a look at 17th century home remedies and folk medicine, some of them less than savoury, taken from original documents and manuscripts. The presentation also looks at the roles and social statuses in the community of the practitioners using the recipes, from cunning folk through to the higher classes. To book either or both of these talks, please visit the web store on the Folklore Podcast website there is a bit.ly link to take you straight there. That is bit.ly slash TFP lectures. With summer solstice just past, it is almost midsummer. In fact, by the time this podcast goes out, it might already be. So, today on the Folklore Podcast, two members of the podcast research team, Joanna Veranda and Paula Schiavone, offer up perspectives on different aspects of the celebration through the lens of the folk horror film Midsummer. But first, a little introduction from me. An important date for those following many and various older religions, due to its being a solstice holiday, Midsummer has become more familiar to others recently, thanks in part to that folk horror film Midsummer, which is perhaps not the most joyous portrayal of the time. Midsummer's Day is an ancient holiday for many, and is especially important in the northern areas, especially Sweden. It has many connections with the sun and nature, and of course in some areas of northern Scandinavia, the sun does not set at all at this time of year. Even in the southern areas, it's only dark for a small number of hours each day. Around the world, there are many customs associated with Midsummer Day. In Greece, a solstice tradition dating back over two and a half thousand years sees people hiking to the top of Mount Olympus. Some countries serve traditional food at this time. In Latvia, it's bacon pie and sweet beer. 
In northern Italy, dishes are prepared with balsamic vinegar, whereas in Rome, the dish of choice is the snail. This stems from an old belief that snails look like they have horns, and so are good protection from the devil. In communities rich in agriculture, the weather conditions were traditionally said to be very important on Midsummer Day. If the weather was good, then it would be a very fruitful growing season. In my area of the UK, we find that Midsummer may also be connected with divinatory practices, something else that in folklore is often tied in with calendar celebrations. Crazywell Pool, below Cramber Tor on Dartmoor, is one such place. Here it was said that anyone who looked into the waters of the pool on Midsummer's Eve would see the likeness of the next parishioner who was going to die. There is an interesting modern version of this story, undoubtedly apocryphal as it contains the usual elements of an urban legend. Two motorcyclists were said to have been told the story of Crazy Well in the pub one night, and a bet was made that they would not visit the pool on Midsummer's Eve and try it for themselves. The bet, of course, was accepted. Because of the distance to get there, they went on the motorbike rather than walking. They arrived at the pool and looked in, but of course they only saw their own reflections. On the way home to claim their prize, the bike veered from the road and both men were killed. The pool, it seems, had been quite accurate. Another divination practice, this time connected with marriage, was described at the town of Hatherley by a servant girl who was born there in 1855 and stayed in the area for the next 20 years or so. She told how some of the village men would assemble in the church porch on Midsummer's Eve and watch the spirits of living neighbours, which became visible at midnight. All of these spirits are identified and they enter the church. Those that come out again are to be married in the next 12 months. Conversely, any that do not come back out will die during the same period, as will any of the men who should fall asleep whilst there. The side of this custom associated with those who are going to die is certainly not just a local one, and we find it in a similar form in many other counties. A more well-known version actually takes place on St Mark's Eve. Midsummer is St John's Eve and it's likely that the two have been conflated over time, as is often the case with folklore traditions. There are, in fact, other divinations for finding love and so on, which are said to take place at midsummer, but which we have discussed previously as happening at other times of the year, such as the use of hemp seeds. It's so often difficult to unpick the various strands of these traditions to trace how they came to take place, where and when they did. But that is all part of the fun of the subject. So, let's take a look at the celebration through the representations in the film Midsummer. And do be aware, if you haven't seen the film, this episode is going to contain many, many spoilers. Midsummer, a drama-slash-horror motion picture, written and directed by American filmmaker Ari Aster, who's also described it as a breakup movie. But, despite this seemingly innocuous description, the complexity of Midsummer's details has fascinated both professional and amateur film theorists, who almost a year since its release 
are still trying to unpack its many hidden meanings and symbologies. Following the adventures of a group of university students in rural Sweden, the film also became an instant folk horror classic, with characters finding themselves amidst the midsummer revels of a secretive pagan cult. Midsummer and the Fool's Journey by Joanna Veranda. In 1949, Professor Joseph Campbell presented a theory that claimed all religious myths and stories ever imagined by humankind shared the very same basic theme, structure, and symbolism, regardless of time of creation, culture, and geography. This concept was called the monomyth, and featured in Campbell's book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces. There, Campbell argued that although we are separated by distance and years, humans still manage to converge into similar symbols, suggesting the possibility of a collective unconscious. Carl Jung even hinted that this psychic phenomenon, manifested through the imagery of archetypes, could reveal the true nature of the human soul. But since then, the monomyth, or hero's journey, inadvertently established itself as a standard rule for writers, who have used the theory, elaborated by Campbell, to produce plausible plots and character development in works of fiction to an almost mythological level. One can easily identify the hero's journey through the path of Luke Skywalker or Frodo Baggins, for example. Their paths follow the same pattern after all. A call to adventure, a meeting with a mentor, then a sudden revelation which causes them to evaluate their personality, leading to a transformation and the acquisition of something Campbell called the ultimate boon, a physical or psychological gift. However, something far older than Campbell himself could serve exactly the same purpose to writers, a tool that relies on a set of archetypes that help the user navigate obstacles sometimes as difficult as those of a fictional hero, the 22 cards of the Major Arcana also known as The Fool's Journey. Being a writer himself, it's very likely that Ari Aster relied on Campbell's theory to determine the plot of Midsummer. But would it be absurd to suggest that he could have been using the major arcana instead? The film begins by showing us a mural divided into five segments, drawn by artist Mu Pan, in a style reminiscent of Hieronymus Bosch's Garden of Earthly Delights. Symbolic elements, such as the moment of the suicide ritual, depict the two elders as angels. Likewise, a skull and a sun appear prominent in both ends of the fresco, possibly signalling the time span of the film taking place between winter and summer, and therefore a portrayal of the pagan seasons, although they could also be an allusion to the Death and the Sun tarot cards. As the Rider-Waite is the most widely used deck in the world, I'll now refer to it to present to you my personal theory, that is Joanna's theory, that Ari Aster used the Major Arcana to develop the plot of Midsummer, after noticing its imagery was very similar to each archetype of the tarot. The audience meets Danny, a young woman who is trying to find out the current whereabouts of her suicidal sister, Terry. As Danny doesn't yet know where Terry is or what she's doing, 
One could say that Danny is just like the fool at the beginning of their journey, the first card of the Major Arcana, and number zero, ignorant. Walking on the edge of a cliff, unaware she is going to embark on a life-changing quest. The Magician enters as a catalyst that sets the fool on their path, telling them they have unlimited potential yet to be used. This is the moment when the supernatural aid of Campbell's hero's journey also makes its appearance. Danny's sister, Terry, could well be this magician, as the Rider Waite card shows an individual pointing in two different directions, a duality that can be applied to the fact Terry could either be alive or dead, in heaven or earth, above or below, just like the magician's hands. I would dare say that Christian... Danny's boyfriend is also a magician of sorts, as their relationship is in a state where it could either continue or come to an end, while the High Priestess may well be a representation of Danny's ultimate boon, her untapped potential held back by the following cards and characters. A straightforward allusion to the Empress and the Emperor may be made through Danny's mother and father. However, I would also theorise that a metaphorical approach was made to these cards through Mark and Josh. Whereas Mark is only going to Sweden to get a chance of looking at beautiful women, therefore representing the Empress, Josh desires wisdom, which he thinks he will achieve by finishing his university thesis, suggesting he may be an Emperor archetype. This leaves Pell as the evident hierophant, the teacher, mentor or guide, upholding traditions which will nurture Danny's spiritual breakthrough by taking her and the group to a pagan festival. Thus, they travel to the region of Halsingland, where they meet up with Pell's brother Ingmar, as well as Simon and Connie, very easily identified as the lovers. The sequence then develops into a mushroom trip instigated by Ingmar, a conceivable portrayal of the seventh major arcana, the Chariot, the Chariot is but another card from the Rider Weight deck that shows a venture can go both ways, as the Charioteer is led by two different coloured sphinxes. The same could be said about the Mushroom's effects on the group. While everyone makes a blissful connection with nature guided by Pell, Danny heads down a dark path, running away from the group until she sees her dead sister. Now, Danny has to find her strength and go deeper into the lion's mouth and den. The group enters Herga, where the festival will take place, through a yellow portal representative of the threshold of the hero's journey. Scattered around the area we can see many beasts, such as a dog, cows, goats, and even a bear, a curious juxtaposition with the strength card. The group is then welcomed by an elder named Father Odd, who admits to be wearing an unusual garment, before heading off somewhere else by himself, just like a hermit. As the crowd starts to rush towards a wooden structure, we may find that the next scene is even more reminiscent of a major arcana archetype, as from atop a circular platform, from atop a wheel of fortune. Another elder, called Siv, explains the group is about to observe a tradition, which happens cyclically every 90 years. A tradition, which we will later find, will be a trial to determine the fortune of all characters. 
we even witness an insert of justice before Siv carries on with the initiation festivities, exemplified through the controversial Reuben, a disabled member of the community who appears to be seen as some sort of impartial guardian, and who later determines the fate of Josh, Mark, and perhaps even Simon and Connie. One of the most gruesome scenes of the film will now take place, as Danny and her unwilling companions witness the suicide ritual. A couple of 72-year-olds, deemed to have reached the end of their lives, stand on the edge of a cliff. They too were fools once, though now they are free from their journey. First, a woman approaches the precipice. She raises her arms to the sky in a gesture eerily similar to the position of the hanged man's legs in the 12th Major Arcana card. She jumps, and is then followed by her counterpart, but he will not immediately perish after his fall. It will take a group of four people to determine his death, carrying a mallet just like Death's banner. Coincidentally, this moment in Campbell's hero's journey is also called the Abyss, serving the purposes of triggering a moment of transformation, death and rebirth for our hero and her companions. However, in order for a hero to be able to fully discern the opportunities death can offer, they need to have temperance, balance, in this instance offered to Danny by Pell when they converse in the barn. Alternatively, note how the lovers Simon and Connie ignore temperance and try to make their escape from Herger, therefore relinquishing their opportunity for growth and triggering an abrupt end to their journey. Thus, we are brought into the devil's realm with a transition by fire, as the bodies of the older couple are burnt in a pit, starting out a period of perilous trials that ultimately lay waste to all unworthy characters. Danny begins experiencing nightmares, and Marja starts making her lascivious advances on Christian. As mentioned earlier, Simon and Connie try to run away. Mark blatantly disrespects traditions by urinating on a sacred tree. Josh makes an unauthorised incursion into the community's temple. Additionally, notice how poignant the presence of the devil becomes as the elder introducing the pole ritual speaks of the Black One, who lured the youths of Herger into the grass and seduced them into dance. The sixteenth card of the Major Arcana, the Tower, could well be this pole just as it may take the shape of the mysterious yellow building that has been looming in the background since the group arrived in Herger. Whatever the case, this is truly the moment of ruin, when many of the characters fail their journey and fall apart. Danny, however, proves to survive the collapse, as she is the last one standing after the pole ritual. My personal hypothesis that Ari Aster used the tarot to develop the plot of Midsummer was actually sparked by the imagery present in this scene. The rite begins with everyone being given a drink from a jug full of herbs, in my interpretation alluding to the lush green scenery and containers present in the star card from the Rider Waite deck. The women then dance around the pole as if following a pre-ordained orbit, and Danny acquires the ultimate boon as a crowned May Queen, the star of the ceremony. Hope is renewed, and everything is possible, 
as Danny feels unrestrained to be her own authentic self. But now is also the moment of truth in the fool's journey, when the hero returns to their original challenge equipped with the knowledge that will allow them to win the final battle. Danny thus uses the power gained from the star to release her repressed emotions for Christian and say goodbye to a relationship that was holding her back. After observing her partner's incursions with Maya through a keyhole, thus symbolising the moon from the Major Arcana and its association with revelations, as well as subconscious potential finally brought to light. After this dark moment, the sun rises. The yellow tower is set on fire with Christian and the other characters who failed their own trials and held Danny back, imprisoned within it. Our May Queen is heartbroken, but she is also optimistic and positive. And so the story ends with Danny's realisation she now holds the world in her hands. The overwhelming feeling of having a family and being welcomed by a community that will support her in every way. Whether this theory is correct or not, the truth is that Ari Aster weaved such a variety of details into Midsummer that just one viewing won't be enough to notice them all, as we would expect from a good writer. And if you're considering being a writer yourself, why not use the Major Arcana as a tool to develop your plot and characters? After all, there is nothing to lose, considering that no matter what you write, your stories will always be a part of the monomyth. Those were the thoughts of Joanna Veranda. Do you agree with them? Do you disagree with them? If you want to discuss them, then do head over to the Folklore Podcast group on Facebook or pop a message onto Twitter and give your thoughts, and then we can all discuss. Secondly, Midsummer as a Food Festival by Pola Schiavone Midsummer opens with an image that can be seen as a painting, a tapestry, but also to a graphic story, compressing the core of the narration in the initial seconds of the movie. Based on a contrast of colours and symbols, Midsummer wants to narrate the story of Danny, her traumatic experience and healing, in the frame of the ceremony of the summer solstice in the Haga community of Sweden. What does this graphic narration tell in its static yet eloquent dynamic? Divided in sections, we have the story of the change of the seasons, and with this, the full life cycle. On a dark corner, a wintry and snowy landscape, crossed by black birds, a contrast with the other side of the image, dominated by a brilliant, powerful sun, shading its yellow and bright light over the green. This basic contrast is also the dynamic of the cycle life-death-rebirth, and consists of the frame and the structure of the narration. Midsummer can be seen as the developing of a big banquet, a ceremony of the delightful, and fascination towards the pleasure and implications of food. Food and the act of ingestion are important parts of the plot itself. While the group is still in America, we see Christian and his friends sharing scarcely one meal, this scene presents a non-cohesive group sitting in a restaurant surrounded by the rests of industrial food. This is clearly the negative to the communal meals, filled with life in colour, 
substance and social bonds that the Swedish community has. In another example, Danny deals with the fear and destruction of her family taking lorazepam, an anxiolytic. Weeks later, when they have arrived in Sweden, she partakes of the ingestion of mushrooms, which constitutes a way of alternative medicine that is also ingested. The psychedelic trip that Danny and the friends initiate detach her from a reality, just as the lorazepam did. But the mushrooms also enable the entering into a realm of full integration of man and nature, anticipating her own transformation. Listening to Pell's words, nature just knows instinctively how to stay in harmony. Danny is penetrated by the mushrooms and enters a realm of nature. These acts of ingestion are already showing the importance and the intimacy that eating and food have in a transformation process. If we consider the importance and sublime of the stomach in connection to the rest of the body, we understand how important it is any object that is not only taken, even for medicinal purposes, but ingested. Several more examples like these appear all throughout the movie. But this analysis concentrates in the ceremonies of the summer solstice as a celebration of the life cycle, and aims to offer a very specific glimpse into it. Because food is a means of life, so we can understand and appreciate a lot from these rituals by observing how the culinary operates in them. But why rituals? Besides the aesthetic and dramatic value that they provide to the plot, the rituals have to be understood in their anthropological and social function. Rituals, as described by Arnold van Gennep, and especially the rites of passage, are the means through which a society deals with the losses and incorporations of a specific change in the social relations of their people. A community such as Herger, that is strongly structured and shows to have an equal communal cohesion, as well as a very specific set of rules and roles for the members, is also very much integrated with the natural environment. In other words, if the nature that they are a part of goes through the seasonal change, the community also goes through it and deals with it, i.e. it celebrates it. The change of the seasons and the arrival of summer supposes a transformation of the outside world, that affects the social internal life in economic and material ways. Fraser has stressed the importance and existence of such common rituals that ensure the destruction of winter as death and the recycling of this into new life in spring and summer. Nature will green, animals will reproduce and have their offspring, but the internal and also the animal aspect of men is part of this transition. Therefore, these rituals are ensuring that the change will be adequate and complete. Food and eating are key points of the rituals, especially because food is a device, as Apigurai considers it. What is then the main goal of the celebrations of the Herger community depicted in Midsummer? To celebrate the integration with nature in its cycle of life and death. To offer and re-establish that which has been taken to participate actively and harmonically in this cycle, to please the whole with good offerings that have their counterpart in abundance of food and life. The acquisition of food is then one of the main goals, 
The rituals aim to have good crops, to feed from nature, and for that, nature needs to be fed first, with all these offerings. Everybody must play their role, engage in their life situation as functional and healthy for the rest of the community. Feed and be fed are locked into an eternal dynamic circle that emulates life itself. So, once Danny is selected as their May Queen, and Christian as the male that will provide new blood, they are both impelled to play their roles and do what they are supposed to do. At this point, we have to look at the community as an organism, where the divine, the natural and the human are a whole, and its preservation is of central importance. This notion, that derives from Eliade's interpretation of rituals as a reacting of the divine perfection, is clear here. The community is integrated by members who are aware of the fundamental importance of the rules, the structure and the roles in order to guarantee the survival of the community. And for that, some have to live, reproduce and die. This being said, we can move to see some examples. We can consider the fertility rites around and integrated with the last common meal that celebrates the May Queen as fundamental occasions where food shows its full functional and symbolic potential. On one hand, we can see the love story happening in a parallel to the blessing of the crops and cattle, once Danny is chosen queen. The celebratory fest of the May Queen operates as the starting point for the rites and also the peak of the celebration. The transformation of nature and society can begin. The final celebratory meal. The May Queen has been elected, and they proceed to celebrate it with a big meal. The effects of the tea drunk for the competition are not only still effective for Danny, but allow her to integrate herself in the community with this new leading role. Danny enters this communion with nature and the society of Herga. The hallucinogenic properties of the drink enable the sensorial perception of this incorporation. Danny sees the movement in the food substance, flowers and leaves as a symbolic extension of the dance they just performed, activating with the impulse of this new life. The vegetation moves around her and with her, also seems to embrace her and get the movement from her movement. The presence of fruit, meat and drink are the gifts of the generous hermaphrodite nature, providing them to nurture themselves. The eating of the herring, that will not be completed, and the toast with a schnapps, probably aquavit, are celebratory costumes that are not only deeply rooted in the tradition, but also continue to be active in the midsummer celebration in Sweden nowadays. With this meal she is not only celebrated as the May Queen, but as family, completely integrated into the community. This common celebratory meal operates as a peak, but the two rituals that follow confirm the need to sustain and hold the cycle together. After the meal is done, Danny, as the new May Queen, is led to perform the blessing of the crops, while Christian will be groomed to perform the sexual act with the young girl. The little love story, as depicted by Ingmar, is actually an impregnation ritual. The starting point of it traces back before these celebrations and even of the crowning of Danny as the May Queen. 
the different segments that make the ritual are spread across the movie as a very important part of the plot. Firstly, this love charm ritual is prophesied in an image very similar to the painting of the beginning that shows how this is executed and is casually found by the characters of the movie when they walk around the settlement. This narration that is told through dynamic images depicts a love spell involving the specifics of the ritual and the successful pregnancy. Secondly, Christian is selected as the male and subject to this spell by a member of the community. According to the tradition depicted in the image, the seeking woman that wants to conquer love bakes a pie that has some of her pubic hair in it. She also serves him some of her menstrual blood, and with this the love spell is executed. These elements, belonging to her body, will create a connection towards him that will allow the love to grow. It is important to consider that this is a love in a very broad sense, as love for life, that has the sole goal of impregnating the girl and incorporating a new human life to the community as new life to their world. Christian is served a pie during a communal meal that doesn't externally show any signs of being special. It is the drink served in the glass that shows an orange tone, while the drinks of everybody else are yellow. The consumption of this meal happens while the disruption in the foreign group is peaking. They start doubting each other and falling apart, which appears to reinforce them acting selfishly. Thirdly, under the force of a spell, Christian is turned into a pure sexual male force. Right at the end of the dance around the May tree, Christian is also offered the same tea, which annuls him completely and makes him very inebriated. Once the May Queen feast ends, he will be groomed, dressed in a gown and given a smoke to inhale that invigorates him. He is led indoors, where he encounters the young author of the spell, laying on a floor decorated with flowers and leaves, surrounded by a group of chanting naked women of all ages. He proceeds to have sex with the girl, in a group and celebratory context that encourages the climax. Once the act is done, he abandons the room, proving in a way that his work is finished, and he is no longer needed in this context. It is very interesting that after this, he will be introduced into the carcass of the bear, and offered by Danny as the new queen of the community in The Last Fire. It is almost as if the animalization has started then. Parallel in time and structure to this love ritual, the blessing of the crops and the cattle occur with Danny as a central performer. As the new Queen of May, and therefore in charge of the ceremonies that ensure the adequate rebirth of life, she is taken in a carriage to the field. A hole is dug in the ground, and an offering of grain, meat and egg is covered with dirt. On top of it, the May Queen holds the fire stick together with another woman as they both hold small trees, and the two of them dance and chant together. It seems quite interesting to think of this physical introduction of the food into the ground as means of feeding, but also as means of planting. This introduction of a matter that allows life, which is food, is acting as a life device, just as the introduction of semen in the female body does. Many rituals of fertility and blessing of land proceed to this costume of introducing the offering, quite frequently food-related, 
into a hole in the ground as trying to reach the bowels, or maybe the uterus, of the earth. On the other side of the globe, and specifically in the northwest region of Argentina, the Pachamama, or Mother Earth, is also given such presence in a similar fashion. As we can see, these two are fertility-symmetric and contemporary rituals. Led by women who organise the actions of the individuals, these ceremonies present life being evoked through food and ingestion. We also have to remember the active role of women around food. Before the ceremony of the May Tree, Danny had already been integrated in these activities, involved actively in the making and ingestion of the tea that starts it all. In an interesting contrast, the activity that we see done by man is the gutting of the bear carcass, the correct cutting and removing of the organs. These fertility rituals of incorporating life, through sex or through food and eating, are in the hands of the feminine community. As Herger takes, so does Herger give, is the premise that explains the ceremony and crowns the end of the movie in a fantastic, cathartic flaming fire that ends up destroying the pain, reversing the stiff and inviting movement. The last human life offering is chosen by the Queen. She is the one who brought the life back to nature and the one who will take that last life to divinity. The community mimics the fire through all of its processes, screaming and crying, agitated in panic, embodying the death, the fear and the desperation. The smile of the May Queen at the end shows as the wild force of nature itself is the crying of a newborn brought into the world through pain to renew the cycle of life. Those are the thoughts of Polar. Again, if you want to discuss those, do head on to our social media and let me know what you think of them. So my thanks to Joanna and Polar for their contributions and to you for joining me for another episode of the podcast. Don't forget, you can book for the Folklore Podcast lectures and enjoy some quality presentations with your chance to ask questions by visiting bit.ly slash tfplectures. Thanks for listening. See you next time.